I'm delighted to welcome uh, Sarah Sawyer from the University of Sussex, who is going to talk to us about the importance of concept. Thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Um, today, I'm going to talk about the importance of concepts specifically for a theory of meaning shift. So I take as an assumption that words change their meaning over time. Some meaning shift is accompanied by a corresponding change in subject matter, and some meaning shift is not. And what I'm going to do is argue that an account of linguistic meaning can accommodate the first kind, where there is a change in subject matter, but a theory of concepts is required in the second kind of case, where there is stability of subject matter through linguistic change. So where there is stability of subject matter through linguistic change, it's concepts, I claim, that provide the stability. So that's the overview. Um, I start with the claim that the meaning of a word can, and typically does, change over time. So here are some examples. The term meat used to mean food in general, and it used to have a correspondingly broader extension than it has today. A clue used to mean a ball of yarn, and hence had an entirely different extension from the one it does today. And the term spinster used to mean a woman who spun wool, and thus had an extension that's distinct from, but perhaps partially overlaps with, the extension it has today. Um, there are, in each of these cases, historical etymological connections between the old meaning and the new meaning. What I'm going to do is leave aside the question of how we individuate words, and I'm just going to focus on meaning shift. So, as I said, meaning shift falls into two broad categories, and these are, as I call them, type 1 cases and type 2 cases. So, the type 1 cases are cases that are accompanied by a corresponding change in subject matter, and the type 2 cases are ones that are not accompanied by a corresponding change in subject matter. So the examples I've just given, meat, yarn, and spinster, are all of the first kind. They're all of type one. They all involve a difference in meaning, a difference in extension, which I'll go on and explain, and a difference in subject matter. The account of linguistic meaning that I'm going to provide explains the difference in meaning in these cases. The account of the relation between meaning and extension I provide explains the corresponding difference in extension, and because the change in extension maps onto a change in subject matter in those cases, there's nothing else to be explained. So all of changing linguistic meaning, change in extension, change in subject matter will be explained by the account of linguistic meaning that I give. The second kind of case, the type two cases, are not so straightforward. And that's because, in the second kind of case, a shift in meaning is not accompanied by a change in subject matter, even though, in a sense that I'll explain, the extension of the term does change as a result of the change in linguistic meaning. And it's this combination of difference in meaning and sameness of subject matter that provides the theoretical complication. So examples of meaning shift of this second kind, the type 2 cases, include the change in meaning in terms such as whale and atom, which are associated with distinct theories at different points in time, <clears throat> 
And they also include the ameliorative change in meaning of terms <coughs> such as consent and rape, which I think are also underwritten by different understandings of the same subject matter at different times. Okay. In cases of the second kind, there are two distinct phenomena that are in need of explanation. There's difference in meaning on the one hand, and there's sameness of subject matter on the other. This amounts to a complication because no single element can explain both the change and the stability. Consequently, the second kind of meaning shift can't be adequately explained just by an account of linguistic meaning. So while my account of linguistic meaning provides an explanation of the first type of case completely, and also provides an explanation of the first phenomenon of meaning change in the second kind of case, I think it's an account of concepts that's required to provide an explanation of the second phenomenon of sameness of subject matter. Um, and I'll go on and offer an account of concepts that, in conjunction with the account of linguistic meaning, provides an adequate explanation of the type two cases. Okay. Um, the dual appeal to a theory of linguistic meaning on the one hand and a theory of concepts on the other is underwritten by a substantive distinction between language and thought. Words, I maintain, are two-sided. They have linguistic meanings and they express concepts. And where there's stability of subject matter through linguistic change, it's the concepts that explain the stability. Um, note that the linguistic meaning of a term cannot be equated with the concept expressed by that term, given that the two have different explanatory roles and are subject to different norms. The distinction between the linguistic meaning of a term and the concept expressed by that term provides an understanding of genuine disagreement, thus avoiding widespread linguistic and conceptual relativism, and it provides a framework for understanding ameliorative change in the context of what has become known as conceptual engineering. Um, I take the claims of the paper to be general, applying to mathematical and logical terms, to theoretical terms in the natural, social and political sciences, to philosophical terms and to overtly normative terms such as ethical terms. So it's a general claim that there's a difference between language and thought, a difference between the linguistic meaning that a word has and the concept that a word expresses. Okay, so let's take a closer look at meaning shift of the first kind. Meaning shift of the first kind is, as I said, meaning shift that's accompanied by a corresponding change in subject matter. So consider once again the term meet. This is section two that we're at. So let's assume that at some point earlier in time, T1, the term meat meant food in general. And that at the current point in time, T2, the term means animal flesh that's eaten as food. Under this assumption, the meaning of the term meat has clearly changed between then and now, between time T1 and time T2. Equally clearly, the extension of the term has changed. There are some things, such as apples, bread and cake, which fall into the extension of the term at T1, they're correctly, according to the linguistic meaning of the term, classified as food, but they don't fall into the extension of the term meat at time T2. Apples, bread and cake are food in general, but they're not animal flesh that is eaten as food. 
This also marks a change in subject matter between the first time T1 and now T2. So an explanation is needed of the change in meaning, the change in extension, and the change in subject matter. And I'll explain how it's provided by an account of linguistic meaning together with an account of the relation between meaning and extension. I take meaning, linguistic meaning, to be determined by use, <clears throat> where the use in question is located at the level of the linguistic community as a whole rather than at the level of the individual speaker. Linguistic meaning, in this sense, is what dictionaries aim to record. I'm happy to accept that there are individual aspects to meaning, but the phenomenon of meaning shift, illustrated by the examples I've given, is best understood as a shift in conventional linguistic meaning um, in the communal sense. And so it's conventional linguistic meaning in the communal sense that I'll focus on. The way in which use determines linguistic meaning is complex. The linguistic meaning of a term cannot be understood as a simple aggregate of individual uses. So given what's often widespread diversity in use, a conjunction of everybody's individual uses would tend towards an inconsistent meaning satisfied by nothing, and a disjunction of individual uses would eliminate the possibility of substantive error and undermine the normativity of language. So I don't think either of those will help in understanding communal linguistic meaning. Nor can the linguistic meaning of a term be understood in purely statistical terms, because a linguistic norm can't be understood as a statistical norm, given the merely descriptive nature of statistical norms. Um, all of these suggestions, the claim that the linguistic meaning of a term can be a conjunction of individual uses, a disjunction of individual uses, or some statistical phenomenon that arises from individual uses, ignore the fact that language is essentially a cooperative social phenomenon and linguistic meaning is shaped by patterns of deference amongst members of a linguistic community, some of whom are more competent in the use of terms than others. So if you take any given term, you will always find some people who are more competent in the use of that term than others. We can take simple examples like um, scientific examples like atom and mass, for instance, where you'll obviously get some people being more competent than others. But even simple terms like chair, ball, dog, and so on will have some people being more competent than others because you don't um, think of a two-year-old's use of those terms in the same way that you think of a competent adult's use of those terms. So there will always be difference in competences across a community. <clears throat> okay, so I've said that linguistic meaning is determined by use, and now I'll go on to say how exactly I understand that claim. I suggest that the linguistic meaning of a term at a time be understood as the characterization of the relevant subject matter that members of the linguistic community would settle on at that time were they to reach reflective equilibrium in the context of a dialectic. So if everyone were to get together and talk honestly and openly, there would be some definition that would eventually be settled upon. And it's a characterization of the subject matter in that open, honest context of a dialectic that I think determines the meaning of a term at that time. <clears throat> 
Okay, so the linguistic meaning of a term at a time is the characterization of the relevant subject matter that members of the linguistic community would settle on at that time were they to reach reflective equilibrium in the context of a dialectic. That definition of linguistic meaning, that account of linguistic meaning, accommodates the obvious truth that some members of a linguistic community will be more competent in the use of a term than others. Because, in the context of a dialectic, those who are less competent would naturally defer to those who are more competent. That means the most competent people would carry the weight in that context. It also accommodates the truth in Quine's claim that there's no separating truths of meaning from matters of fact. Because the characterization of a subject matter could not be agreed without reflection on how the relevant term is applied in actual cases. Would this count as a whale? Does this count as a chair? Is this really um, an atom? Let's say. The agreed characterization would reflect the actual practice of the linguistic community at the time, not by accommodating each individual's actual use, but by accommodating the actual use of the most competent and the deferential patterns amongst everyone. This is the sense, I think, in which linguistic meaning is determined by use. The agreed characterization of the subject matter would also set the relevant linguistic norms by establishing how the relevant term ought to be used. A term is used correctly on this account if, and only if, it's used in accordance with the characterization of the subject matter that would be settled on in the context of a dialectic at the time. So we have normativity um, following from that characterization of linguistic meaning. <clears throat> this understanding of linguistic meaning provides an adequate explanation of the difference in meaning between the term meat at T1 and the term meat at T2. The meaning of the term meat at T1 is given by the characterization of the relevant subject matter <coughs> that would have been settled on by members of the linguistic community at T1. The meaning of the term meat at T2 is given by the characterization of the relevant subject matter that would be settled on by members of the current linguistic community at T2. These would clearly differ. The characterization of the subject matter associated with the term meat at T1 would plausibly be food in general, while the characterization of the subject matter associated with the term meat at T2 would plausibly be animal flesh that's eaten for food. The linguistic meaning of the term meat at T1 <coughs> differs from the linguistic meaning of the term at T2 then, precisely because the underlying linguistic practices at the times differ. So the difference in meaning is explained by the difference in linguistic practice at the two times. The understanding of linguistic meaning I've suggested provides, I think, an adequate explanation of difference in meaning generally. Where there's a change in linguistic practice, where there's a change in the way that a, a subject matter would be characterised by the linguistic community, there will be change in linguistic meaning. And where there's change in linguistic meaning, this will be because there's a change in linguistic practice. The meanings of terms such as meat, clue and spinster 
all of which display meaning shift of the first kind, type 1 cases, have changed over time because the use of these terms in the linguistic community has changed over time. That is, the characterizations of the relevant subject matter that would be settled on by the relevant linguistic communities in the context of a dialectic would differ at the different times. Okay, so that's an explanation for why the meaning of those terms has shifted between time t and time t. Uh, sorry, time t1 and time t2. So now we need to explain the change in extension of such terms. The extension of a general non-indexical term, this is also given on the handout, the extension of a general non-indexical term such as meet is typically understood as its range of applicability, the things to which it correctly applies where this is in turn understood as the class of entities to which the term correctly applies. However, given the distinction I want to draw between the linguistic meaning of a term on the one hand and the concept it expresses on the other, this formulation of the extension of a term as um, <coughs> the class of entities to which the term correctly applies is unacceptably ambiguous. Does the term correctly apply in virtue of its linguistic meaning or in virtue of the concept it expresses. So to avoid that ambiguity, I'll say that the extension of a general non-indexical term is the class of entities that satisfy the term's linguistic meaning. So I am just talking about general terms which are non-indexical. I'm not talking about proper names and I'm not talking about demonstratives. It's just general terms like meat, clue, spinster, whale, rape, consent. So I will say that the extension of a general non-indexical term is the class of entities that satisfy the term's linguistic meaning. The relation of satisfaction here is appropriate because the meaning of a general term is descriptive. It's because an apple satisfies the description food in general that it falls into the extension of the term meat at T1 and it's because an apple does not satisfy the description animal flesh that's eaten as food, that it does not fall into the extension of the term meat at T2. Okay. So the extension of a general term is specifically the extension of its linguistic meaning. An entity falls into the extension of a term if it satisfies the descriptive meaning of that term, and it doesn't fall into its extension if it doesn't satisfy the descriptive meaning of the term. For such terms, then, we can say that meaning determines extension. The account of the relation between meaning and extension provides a general explanation of the change in extension that accompanies meaning shift of the first kind in these type 1 cases. The extension of the terms such as meat, clue and spinster change over time because different et entities satisfy their descriptive meanings at different points in time. Meaning shift of this first kind is also accompanied by a change in subject matter. What makes meaning shift of the first kind relatively straightforward is the fact that the intuitive change in subject matter is marked in each case by the change in extension that results from the change in linguistic meaning. So where there's a change in linguistic meaning from the term meat at T1 and the term meat at T2, there's also a change in extension because apples satisfy the descriptive meaning of the term at T1 but do not satisfy it at T2, 
and there's intuitively a change of subject matter, the subject matter, what people were talking about at T1, is not the same as what we're talking about now when we use the term meat. Okay. Okay. Um, so this account of the relation between meaning and extension provides a general explanation of the change in extension that accompanies meaning shift of the first kind. Um, the extensions of terms change over time because different entities satisfy their descriptive meanings. Meaning shift of this first kind is also accompanied by a change in subject matter. What makes meaning shift of the first kind relatively straightforward is precisely the fact that the intuitive change in subject matter is marked by a change in extension that results from the change in linguistic meaning. As such, I take it that the account of linguistic meaning that I've given and the account of the relation between meaning and extension provides an adequate account of meaning shift of the first kind. I think that's all there is to be said. We've got an account of linguistic meaning, an account of how an extension is determined, and that explains everything you need to explain with things like meat, yarn, and spinster. Okay. It's the second type of case that I think is the interesting case. So let's now look at the second kind of case, the type two cases. The type two cases are cases where there's meaning shift that is not accompanied by a change in subject matter. So the subject matter is intuitively the same, even though the linguistic meaning has changed. So consider once again the term whale. Let's assume that at some earlier point in time, T1, the term whale meant a very large fish with a streamlined hairless body, a horizontal tail fin, and a blowhole on top of the head for breathing. Something like that. And that at the current point in time, let's assume that T2, the term whale means something like a very large marine mammal with a streamlined hairless body, a horizontal tail fin, and a blowhole on top of the head for breathing. So it used to include the term fish, and now it includes the term mammal. That's the only difference. Obviously, these are simplifying assumptions, and you don't need to worry about whether the example is precise or accurate. This is just the example I'm taking. So under that assumption that the meaning is as I've specified at T1 and the meaning is as I've specified at T2, the term whale has a different linguistic meaning at T1 from the linguistic meaning it has at T2. The term whale, then, does exhibit the phenomenon of meaning shift. The meaning has changed over time. That claim that the term whale exhibits the phenomenon of meaning shift fits naturally with the account of linguistic meaning that I've already given. The characterizations of the relevant subject matter, whales, that is, that would be settled on by the relevant linguistic community in the context of a dialectic would differ at the different times. The account of linguistic meaning provided, then, explains the difference in meaning between the term whale at T1 and the term whale at T2. But what explains the stability of subject matter? What explains the fact that even though there is a difference in meaning of the term whale over time, it is nonetheless whales that we are talking about? What explains that stability of subject matter? Well, it's natural to think that the subject matter of a term, just like the extension of a term, is determined by its linguistic meaning. That the subject matter of a term and the extension of the term go hand in hand, perhaps that they're identical. That's what some people have claimed. 
These natural thoughts are consistent with cases that exhibit the first kind of meaning shift, but they're inconsistent with cases that exhibit the second kind of meaning shift. In these kinds of cases, the type 2 cases, the extension of a term changes along with a change in linguistic meaning, despite the fact that the subject matter remains the same. That the extension changes can be seen by reflecting on the way in which linguistic meaning determines reference. The extension of a general the extension of a general non-indexical term, as I've said earlier, is the class of entities that satisfy the term's linguistic meaning. So the extension of the term whale at T1 is the class of entities that satisfy the description, a very large fish, dot, 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 dot. Okay. The extension of the term whale at T2 on the other hand, is the class of entities that satisfy the description a very large marine mammal, dot, 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 dot. Um, on the assumption that the descriptions are not satisfied by the same class of entities, on the assumption, that is, that mammals are not fish, it follows that the extension of the term whale has changed in the same way that the extension of the term meat has changed. There's a change in descriptive linguistic meaning, and hence there's a change in extension in these cases. The extension of a term is determined by its descriptive meaning. Since a change in both the meaning and the extension of a term is consistent with no change in subject matter, we have to conclude first that the linguistic meaning of a term does not determine its subject matter, and second, that the subject matter of a term cannot be specified by a specification of the entities that fall into its extension. The two may diverge. So the extension of a term and the subject matter of a term can't be the same. That's the point. So we're in need of an explanatory account of what determines the intuitive notion of a subject matter. Because intuitively, at time t1 and at time t2, the subject matter of the term whale is whales. But given the account of linguistic meaning I've given, and given the account of the relation between meaning and extension, the extension of the term at the two times is different. Okay. So what we need, as I said, is an explanatory account of what determines the intuitive notion of a subject matter, given that it can't be linguistic meaning. And the claim I want to make is that the subject matter of a term is determined by the concept the term expresses, where a concept is an element of thought not of language. To underscore the claim that linguistic meaning does not determine subject matter, note that identity of linguistic meaning is neither necessary nor sufficient for identity of subject matter. The failure of necessity is demonstrated by the example I've just given of the term whale. The meaning of the term whale at T1 is different from the meaning of the term whale at T2, but their subject matter, whales, is <coughs> identical. So you can have difference in meaning with sameness of subject matter. The failure of sufficiency can be demonstrated by a sort of twin earth style counterfactual variant of the case. So we need only imagine a counterfactual scenario in which the meaning of the term whale at T1 remains fixed because the practices of the, ling the, practices of the linguistic community at T1 remain fixed, 
But the world is different in the following respect. In the counterfactual scenario, the very large creatures with streamlined hairless bodies, horizontal tail fins and blowholes on top of their heads for breathing are in fact fish and not mammals. That's the counterfactual scenario. The meaning of the term whale at T1 is by hypothesis the same in the counterfactual scenario as in the actual world at T1. So it is fish of a certain kind. But the subject matter in the counterfactual situation is clearly different. In the counterfactual situation, the subject matter isn't whales. We may even assume that there are no whales in the counterfactual situation. The subject matter is fish of a certain kind because that is the creatures that are there in that situation. So identity of linguistic meaning is neither necessary nor sufficient for identity of subject matter. Okay, okay so, so far I've argued that the linguistic meaning of a term does not determine its subject matter on the grounds that identity of linguistic meaning is neither necessary nor sufficient for identity of subject matter. I've also claimed that it's the concept expressed by a term rather than its linguistic meaning that determines subject matter. And what I'm now going to do is offer an account of concepts that supports that claim, the claim that concepts determine subject matter. So, concepts. I take concepts to be mental representations that are components of thought, and I adopt an externalist understanding of mental representation, according to which mental representation depends constitutively on non-representational <coughs> relations between a subject and her environment. So concepts are individuated in part, but essentially by relations between a thinker and objective properties in her world. We can say that the property F that in part individuates a thinker's concept C is both the property to which C refers and the property that C represents. Okay. So it's in virtue of standing in a certain relation to whales that you can acquire the concept whale, and it's in virtue of standing to a certain um, group of fish creatures that you, you acquire a different concept. Okay, so the externalist understanding of concepts um, we can just illustrate by considering, again, the term whale. On an externalist understanding of mental representation, the term whale expresses the concept whale in the actual world, both at T1 and at T2. In virtue of the fact that the linguistic community at T1 and the linguistic community at T2 both stand in the requisite causal relation to whales. In the counterfactual scenario I described, in contrast, the term whale does not express the concept whale because in the counterfactual scenario, the creatures that look and behave like whales are not whales. Instead, they're a type of fish. They're sort of look-alikes. We can call these creatures whalefish. In the counterfactual scenario, then, according to the externalist, the term whale expresses the distinct concept whalefish, since the members of the linguistic community in the counterfactual scenario stand in the relevant relation not to whales, because there are none, but to whalefish, these other creatures that look similar. 
Note that the concept expressed by the term whale in the actual world remains constant through the change in its linguistic meaning and hence through the change in its extension because I've argued that the extension of the term whale changes across time because the meaning changes across time and different entities satisfy the meaning at T1 than satisfy the meaning at T2. As such, members of the linguistic community at T1 and members of the linguistic community at T2 are able to think and talk about whales despite the difference in linguistic meaning and extension of the term whale at the different times. It's the thought, specifically concepts, that provides stability through linguistic change. The externalist understanding of concepts then explains the fact that the subject matter of the term whale is the same at T1 and at T2. It's the concept expressed by a term that determines its subject matter. This is, in effect, a consequence of the fact that the subject matter itself enters into the individuation conditions of the relevant concept. OK, so this marks a significant difference, I think, between language and thought. And I think it's often overlooked in the externalist literature, although it is emphasised by Tyler Birch. In the linguistic case, we have a distinction between an individual's use of a term, right, one individual's use of a term, and the use of that term by a community taken as a whole, the communal use. So we have the individual use of a term and the communal use of a term, and they may differ. We have a distinction, that is, between the characterisation of a subject matter that an individual would give and the characterisation of a subject matter that the members of her linguistic community would settle on in the context of a dialectic. And it's the latter that determines linguistic meaning. This explains how a term can have a single linguistic meaning at a time and yet nonetheless be used differently by different individuals at that time. So different individuals can use the term slightly differently even though there's one linguistic meaning. The linguistic meaning of a term can be stable across different individual uses within a linguistic community at a time because the linguistic meaning of a term is a function of how the community uses the term rather than a function of how the individual uses the term. In the conceptual case at the level of thought, we have a corresponding distinction between what I'll call an individual's conception and the conception of the community viewed as a whole. That is, we have a distinction between the set of beliefs that an individual associates with a concept and the set of beliefs that the members of a community taken as a whole would agree were associated with the concept. But in the conceptual case, neither the former nor the latter determine the concept expressed by a term. According to the externalist, concepts are not individuated by individual conceptions, by an individual subject's beliefs. They're not individuated by the way the individual thinker takes the world to be nor, according to the externalist, are concepts individuated by communal conceptions. They're not individuated by the way the community as a whole takes the world to be. Concepts are individuated by relations to objective properties independently of our individual or communal conceptions of them. And that's not the case with linguistic meaning. Linguistic meaning is tied to communal use. Concepts go above and beyond communal use. So consequently, not only can a term express a single concept while being associated with different individual conceptions by different individuals, crucially, a term can express a single concept 
while being associated with different communal conceptions by different linguistic communities. This is what allows concepts and not linguistic meaning to determine a subject matter that remains stable through linguistic change. So linguistic meaning is a function of use, which is a function of communal conceptions, if you like, but concepts are a function of relations to objective properties in the world. And in that sense, they go beyond anything that anyone might think at the time. My account of the linguistic meaning of a term as a community's best attempt to characterise the relevant subject matter invites an interpretation of Putnam's original twin earth thought experiment that differs from the standard externalist interpretation. So the setup, I take it, is familiar. Whereas the watery liquid on Earth, this stuff, is H2O, water, the watery liquid on twin Earth is hypothesised to be twin water. It's got a different molecular structure, which we'll call XYZ. So superficially, they look the same, but in fact, underneath, they're distinct kinds of stuff. So for simplicity, I'm going to assume that the molecular structure of water was not known to anyone in 1700 on Earth, but was known generally in 2000, and that the molecular structure of twin water was not known to anyone in 1700 on twin Earth, but was known generally in 2000. According to Putnam, the difference between Earth and twin Earth, the fact that there's water here and twin water there, implies first that the term water on Earth differs in meaning and extension from the term water on twin Earth, both in 1700 and in 2000. Second, that neither term undergoes a change in meaning or a corresponding change in extension through this period. So the term water on Earth now means water and always has done, and the term water on twin Earth now, as it were, means twin water and always has done. Um, the account of linguistic meaning I've provided entails the rejection of both of those claims. So it goes against Putnam's original understanding of twin earth. Given the difference between water and twin water is evident only at the level of molecular structure, and that in 1700 no one knew about molecular structure, the best attempts of the linguistic community on earth to characterise water in 1700 would have been identical to the best attempts of the linguistic community on twin earth to characterise twin water at that time. The linguistic meaning of the term water on both earth and twin earth would have been something like clear, colourless, potable liquid that fills the rivers and lakes and sustains life. So they would have had the same linguistic meaning at that time. Since the extension of a term is the class of entities that satisfy its descriptive meaning, the extension of the term water would also have been the same on Earth as on Twin Earth in 1700. Because you have the same descriptive meaning, that means you'll have the same extension. That's the first respect in which I go against Putnam. By the time we reach 2000, the term water on Earth does differ in meaning and extension from the term water on Twin Earth. I agree with Putnam on that point, but for different reasons. In 2000, the term water on Earth differs in linguistic meaning from the term water on twin Earth because each of the relevant linguistic communities has sufficient knowledge of the molecular structure of water here and twin water there that their linguistic practices would differ. The characterization of water 
that the linguistic community on Earth would settle on in the context of a dialectic in <coughs> 2000 includes a description of its molecular structure. That would be part of the definition. And the characterization of twin water that the linguistic community on Twin Earth would settle on in 2000 in the context of a dialectic includes a description of its molecular structure, X, Y, Z, which is different. It's because the linguistic practices on Earth differ from those on Twin Earth that the term water on Earth differs in linguistic meaning from the term water on Twin Earth. And it's because the different linguistic meanings are satisfied by different liquids, right? the meaning of the term water is only satisfied by H2O and the meaning of the term water on Twin Earth is only satisfied by XYZ, they differ in extension. So different linguistic meanings, different extension in those cases. So what we have is a change in linguistic meaning and a corresponding change in extension from 1700 to 2000, both on Earth and on Twin Earth. Putnam's claim that there's no meaning shift and no change in extension should, I think, be rejected. Putnam's mistake was to think that the intuitions relating to Twin Earth were intuitions concerning the nature of language. They are, in part, intuitions about the nature of thought. It's not just that what Putnam says about language can also be said about thought. That is something that Tyler Burge has emphasised. It's rather that Putnam argues for claims about the nature of language on the basis of intuitions that are best understood as intuitions about the nature of thought and not about language at all. We can see this by noting a tension in Putnam's account. So Putnam distinguishes two elements that he claims are missing from traditional semantic theory, the semantic theory that he was rejecting. The first element is, as he puts it, the contribution of society. The second is the contribution of the real world. But the two elements pull in different directions. They give you different results for the same case. The contribution of society to linguistic meaning implies that the meaning of the term water as used on Earth at T1, is identical to the meaning of the term water as used on twin Earth at T1, which is what I've said. This follows from my account of linguistic meaning, which emphasises the role of society in the determination of meaning. But the implication doesn't depend on my account. Putnam himself introduces the notion of linguistic deference, which he articulates as deference to experts. In this context, experts have typically been understood as those who are knowledgeable about the subject matter. But the experts to whom we defer at a given moment in time are actual experts rather than ideal, all-knowing experts. They're not infallible and can't be presumed to know everything there is to know about the relevant subject matter. The history of science, for example, is replete with experts who were wrong about at least some aspects of the subject matter that fell into their area of expertise. Experts, then, are merely those who are the most competent amongst us in the use of a term. That's what an expert is. If the linguistic meaning of an individual's term is determined by what the experts mean by that term, then linguistic meaning is determined by the experts best attempt to characterise the subject matter. Okay, so the contribution of society to linguistic meaning seems to imply that the term water on Earth at T1 and the term water on Twin Earth at T1 have the same linguistic meaning because 
the relevant linguistic communities will characterise their own relevant subject matter in the same ways. The contribution of the real world to linguistic meaning pulls in the opposite direction. It implies, as Putnam maintains, that the meaning of the term water as used on Earth at T1 is different from the meaning of the term water as used on Twin Earth at T1. And of course, the linguistic meaning can't be both the same and different. Water and twin water are objectively different stuffs. Water is not the same as twin water. And they're different stuffs independently of what anyone, even an expert, believes. And this apparently supports the intuition of difference in linguistic meaning. But if the two contributions that Putnam identifies are understood as contributions to a single phenomenon, linguistic meaning, as Putnam has it, they'll generate inconsistencies. Since the experts in society are themselves prone to error in their characterizations of the real world, the contribution of society and the contribution of the real world will sometimes deliver inconsistent results about the nature of the supposed single phenomenon in question. To resolve the problem, the two contributions, I think, need to be seen as contributions to different phenomena. So the contribution of society that Putnam identifies is best understood as a contribution to language, to linguistic meaning. And the contribution of the real world that he identifies is best understood as a contribution to thought, to concepts. Uh, this is exactly what I've been suggesting throughout the paper. The linguistic practices of society constrain linguistic meaning, which determines extension. The real world constrains concepts, which determine reference where reference is not the same as extension. On this understanding, we can make sense of Putnam's incorrect claim that the term water on Earth does not change its meaning over time by reconstruing it as the claim that the concept expressed by the term water does not change over time. We can then do justice to both of Putnam's claims, although the term water has the same linguistic meaning in 1700 on Earth as it does on Twin Earth, the subject matter differs on Earth and on Twin Earth. Moreover, although the term water on Earth in 2000 differs in both linguistic meaning and extension from the term water on Earth in 1700, the subject matter remains the same. It's water. The term water exhibits meaning shifts then of the second case, case sorry, of the second kind. It's a type two case, and we need linguistic meaning and concepts to explain what's going on. Linguistic meaning explains the change, concepts explain the stability. So linguistic meaning is determined by patterns of actual use, concepts are determined by real relations to objective properties, and as such, concepts can provide stability through linguistic change. And that, I think, provides an adequate explanation of meaning shift of the second kind. Okay, now I'm going to talk a little bit about error, disagreement and truth. So distinguishing clearly between linguistic meaning on the one hand and concepts on the other provides us with a theoretical framework in which we can make sense both of change and of stability. That's what I hoped to provide. Linguistic meaning tracks the former, it tracks the change. Concepts explain the latter, they explain the stability. Without an account of stability, all meaning shift is meaning shift of the first kind. And hence all meaning shift will inevitably amount to a changing of the topic. This brings with it the kind of incommensurability that Kuhn thought plagued theory change, and it entails an unacceptable relativism. 
So if we look again at the sentence, well, take the sentence, bread is a form of meat. The sentence, bread is a form of meat, was generally regarded as true at T1, <coughs> but is generally regarded as false at T2. Nonetheless, it's clear that any appearance of disagreement is merely superficial. The sentences simply express different thoughts at the different times, because the concept expressed by the term meat at T1 is distinct from the concept expressed by the term meat at T2. That means that the sentence, bread is a form of meat, is true at T1, true relative to the linguistic framework at T1, if you like, but false at T2, false relative to the linguistic framework at T2. In cases of that first kind, the type 1 cases, there's no stability of subject matter because a change in linguistic meaning is tracked by a change in concept. Now consider the sentence, whales are fish. This sentence was also generally regarded as true at T1 and is generally regarded as false at T2. If a change in linguistic meaning is always tracked by a change in concept, if they're all type 1 cases, then we're forced to say that here too the sentences simply express different thoughts at the different times because the concept expressed by the term whale at T1 on this assumption is distinct from the concept expressed by the term whale at T2. Consequently, the sentence is true at T1 relative to that linguistic framework and false at T2 relative to the current linguistic framework. But once we distinguish between the linguistic meaning of a term and the concept expressed by a term in the way that I've suggested, we can allow that the concept expressed by the term whale remains constant through the linguistic change. And hence we can understand the apparent disagreement as a genuine disagreement about whales, about whether whales are fish. The distinction between language and thought brings with it a distinction between linguistic frameworks on the one hand, which are individuated by actual linguistic practices, and conceptual frameworks on the other, individuated by real relations to the world. And that, I think, gives you at least the basis for an antidote to Kuhn's claims about incommensurability and to Carnap's assurance of so-called external questions. Okay, so that distinction between linguistic meaning on the one hand and concepts on the other can, in certain cases, explain why there's genuine disagreement across time, even though linguistic meaning has changed. Reflection on the change in linguistic meaning of the term whale over time also brings to light a point about the rationale for theoretical and linguistic change. I've said that the linguistic meaning of a, of a term can be thought of as a community's best attempt to characterise the relevant subject matter. We've seen that there's a potential gap between a community's best attempt to characterise the relevant subject matter and the correct characterisation of the subject matter. And it's recognition of that gap in, that in particular cases that drives theory change and hence change in linguistic meaning. In the actual world, the linguistic community's best attempt to characterise whales at T1 turned out to be incorrect. They got it wrong. Nonetheless, it provided the linguistic meaning of the term whale at that time. The shift in meaning of the term whale between T1 and T2 can then be understood as a change in linguistic practice brought about by a realisation that the initial characterisation was incorrect. 
In the context of a dialectic at some point between T1 and T2, the initial characterization of Wales would have to be rejected and replaced by one that was considered to be accurate. Of course, that may still be inaccurate, but it was replaced by one that was considered to be accurate. Our characterizations of various subject matters often fall short of the facts, and a change in linguistic practice can often be understood as an attempt to characterize the facts more accurately than has previously been achieved. These attempts rationalize meaning shift of the second kind. As such, wherever there's the possibility of less than fully understanding a given subject matter, there's the possibility of this kind of second meaning shift, this second kind of meaning shift. Examples abound not just in empirical science, but in philosophy, in mathematics, in logic, um, as well as in the social, political, and moral realm. I'm not going to discuss all of these cases. Um, I hope to do so with some in the future. I've done with others in the past. But for now, I'm just going to offer some brief remarks on an example drawn from the recent literature on ameliorative change in conceptual engineering. So I'm going to take as my example the term rape. The debate about whether rape should be recognised as a phenomenon that could occur within marriage, as well as outside marriage, goes back a long way. But the debate, I suggest, is correctly understood as a debate about rape. This can only be true if there's some stability of subject matter across the two sides of the debate. Linguistic practice surrounding the term rape has clearly changed over time. This means that the linguistic meaning of the term rape has changed over time because the linguistic practice has changed. But we should not, I suggest, accept the kind of relativism about rape that would follow from thinking of the change in meaning as meaning shift of the first kind. Acts of rape within marriage may not previously have been recognised as such, but they were acts of rape nonetheless. The change in linguistic practice reflects a recognition that the earlier linguistic practice got the facts wrong it reflected a misunderstanding of the nature of rape. I finish with a potential objection. Um, it might be thought that it's my account of linguistic meaning that should be rejected. So perhaps instead we should understand linguistic meaning not as tied to actual practice, but as determined by real relations to objective properties in the way that I've suggested concepts are to be understood. So on this proposed alternative, the linguistic meaning of a term would determine its subject matter as well as its extension, and the subject matter and extension of the term rape or the term whale would be identical in the past as it is now. However, this has the benefit of accommodating stability at the level of linguistic meaning at the cost of eliminating meaning shift at all. On this view, the meaning of the term rape, the term whale, would be the same across time, and hence there would be no meaning shift. Moreover, it eliminates a theoretical notion of linguistic meaning that tracks the actual use of a term by a linguistic community. There are, I take it, two important aspects to our language use that need to be explained. Actual linguistic usage, and as we might put it, ideal linguistic usage. How certain of our terms are in fact used on the one hand, and how those terms ought to be used on the other. On this proposed alternative view of linguistic meaning, we fail to capture the first, but without a theory of concepts, we fail to capture the second. So you can only account for change and stability if you have both a theory of linguistic meaning that's tied to actual practice and a theory of concepts that's tied to the way the world is, which is what I've offered. 
So perhaps particularly in the context of moral terms, we should be aiming to use our terms in the way in which they ought to be used, not just in the sense of according with the community's best attempt to characterise the subject matter, but in the sense of actually according with the correct characterisation of the subject matter. Concepts provide us with the stability of subject matter that makes the move from the one to the other possible. Okay, so in conclusion, I've argued that the linguistic meaning of a term is not to be equated with the concept expressed by the term because the two have different explanatory roles and are subject to different norms. Where there's stability of subject matter through linguistic change, it's concepts that explain the, st the stability. It's also concepts that explain <coughs> the possibility of genuine disagreement over a single subject matter, thus avoiding widespread linguistic and conceptual relativism. Concepts provide us with a fundamental representational relation to aspects of reality, even when we do not fully comprehend them. Our lack of comprehension is evident in almost every area of inquiry philosophy, maths, logic, empirical sciences, the social, the political, the moral. But in all these areas, I think we can strive for understanding and for meaning shift in the right direction. We can strive, that is, towards the true and the good.